and welcome to the MPG Path Forward podcast. This is our third installment of Path Forward, and today we're going to be focused on everybody's favorite channel, the club channel. Easy to sell to, margin accretive, and just a real piece of cake for manufacturers. I don't even really know why we're talking about it. But uh, no, in all seriousness, when we look at the club channel in the U.S. today, uh, it represents, to this day, one of the fastest growing formats in the United States in terms of trying to capture retail growth. And it does present suppliers with uh, some really interesting opportunities, but also obviously some challenges as well. And one of the challenges, of course, is in just thinking about it as a channel at all. And one of the things we're going to explore today, get into our conversation, is you know to the degree that this is a channel, great, but also really trying to understand particularly the nuanced differences between Costco and Sam's Club as we all try to create better go-to-market strategies um, in the club channel. Today, from an MPG point of view, I am joined in that journey by two absolute experts in this class of trade who introduce themselves in more detail in a moment. I'm joined by uh, Todd Matherly and by Carla Pettigrew, and uh, the three of us are going to have a little bit of a, a roundtable conversation around club. So, Todd, I'll, I'll kick it to you first if you just want to um, sort of give the team your background. Uh, obviously, you've been involved in the club channel for a while. And then also talk a little bit about what MPG's proposition. And then, Carla, as a relatively new member of the MPG team, you can uh, can highlight your background in this space as well. So, Todd, I'll kick it to you first. All right. Thanks, Brian. Always great to uh, be with you and talk about some great topics. And certainly you and I have spent a lot of time in a vendor room talking about this very topic. But uh, good to be here with you today. And so I'm Todd Matherly. I lead the market performance. Yeah, we never thought of recording it before, but this is. A, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, you know, we're evolving, man. We're evolving. Or maybe you were. I just didn't know it. We, we, well, we've been talking about this for so long. We would have to record it on a cassette tape back in the day. So, uh, yeah. Well, the, I guess the good news is some of it hasn't changed. The you know, true. but there is a lot of things that has evolved. So we'll talk about that today. But so yeah, I you know happy to be with you. I uh, lead the team here in Bentonville with for Market Performance Group. Uh, prior to joining Market Performance Group, I spent a long time at Walmart and Sam's Club. So was blessed to be kind of on both sides of the business there and a lot of time in the health and wellness areas, as well as the food area, and then kind of everything else in between, working a lot on some of the back end uh, things of merchandising with private brand and pricing and many other things. So uh, certainly stay close to what's happening here in Bentonville. And really, uh, that's kind of what we do at Market Performance Group. We help our clients uh, navigate today's world across retail, and whether that's Amazon or Club or Mass, grocery, even down to value, and all the other emerging channels. And really what we try to do is be an extension of our client's team, bring a great perspective of what we know, having lived either inside of a retailer or sold into a retailer like Carla has for many years. So we bring that perspective and guidance to our clients and really try to add value and help them navigate uh, the space that is this omni-channel world we live in. And so we look forward to talking about that today and how we do that for sure. Carla, over to you. Well, uh I'm Carla Pettigrew, and I'm uh, new to MPG as of the last the month or so, but um, I came from a background of working with Costco for now almost 20 years. The better part of my time was spent with Johnson & Johnson for 22 years, and I managed our Costco uh, skincare, first aid, and baby businesses, and you know, I have really worked on understanding what an item merchant is all about. And, you know, the, one of the things I think is an asset is when you've worked with a channel as long as I have with Costco, that, um, you know, you become a salesperson, not only for the clients that you represent, but also for the retailer, because our job is also to help our clients understand how to do business with this retailer and how to be successful, because it's very different. 
it's a great, it could be very high highs and a lot of opportunities. So uh, joining MPG provided me with the opportunity to uh, take my experience with Costco and um, broaden and reach our client base. Excellent. And you used a phrase, Carl, I think we're going to come back to, which is item merchant, which I think is such a good way to think about the business for people that are uh, kind of relatively new to the club way of looking at the world. Um, I've always joked with people, and Carl, I may have joked with you about this at one point, but uh, one of the most useless business cards in the world is category analyst Costco team. It's like, well, that's good. There's only two things in the world Costco hates, which are categories and analysis. So um, you may want to just change your title to tobogganist or like king of Thailand or something. So well, let's uh, dive in a little bit and uh, let's set the stage a little bit from your perspective. I mean, look, Costco and Sam's are, um, they're distinctive businesses, probably the best way to put it. You know, they occupy a channel and, uh, you know, from an internal manufacturing point of view, the requirements are similar enough that they get lumped together a lot in terms of, you know, from a process of trying to solve the business problem associated with managing them. But as we know, they are quite different. So how would you think about the SAMS member versus the Costco member? And then uh, we'll get to a second question, which is how would you think about the SAMS member and the Costco member in this particular economic environment? Like what are we, what are we seeing out of those members as they, uh, in terms of how they use the clubs that they belong to. And the third one would be whatever perspective you have on whether the Costco and Sam's members are, you know, actually distinct, i.e. they're different people or to the degree that there's overlap between the two. So um, either one of you can start. I'm indifferent. Well, let me take a stab at it first. I think we talked about a lot, I think, over the years, how address geography matters. And I think it really applies when you talk about Costco and Sam's to where Fundamentally, the concept is the same. Even you see a new, a brand new Sam's Club, you know, basically it looks very similar to a new Costco. Maybe the footage is a little different, adjacencies and the areas that Costco goes bigger in, general merchandise certainly is different. But overall, same strategy, similar strategy. I think the challenge is where that address or where the, what city they're in. And I think the when you think about the demographic or what the income is in that market is really what drives a lot of the potential and maybe some of the differences. Uh, we were even talking about it earlier that a club that's in a lower population city, like uh, we even use Fort Smith, Arkansas, because it's close to us. The approach there and the opportunity there is totally different than the Palo Alto or Plano or pick another large city. So understanding the differences in the locations, certainly a big part of then who, who the member is or who the opportunity to get as a member in that marketplace is. And then the approach to them is a little different, right? And how they think about who the competition is there and who they're fighting for traffic and trips against. And then also what the members' live looks like and how it's different. And we could talk about that all day, but, but that's how I'd start out thinking about that. How about you, Carla? Well, you know, I think in terms of, you know, Costco, you know, Costco doesn't have an anchor. You know, I think there's been a, um, a buildup from Walmart is connected to Sam's Club. So obviously... You know, people who are more regular Walmart shoppers uh, tend to gravitate more to Sam's Club. And to Todd's earlier point, I think geography has a lot to do with it. And I think it's pretty much the same for all channels. But Costco's average member is 52 years old. However, you know, the higher percentage of the new memberships that have been signing up have been millennials. So, you know, for this channel, while the Costco average member is 52, makes over $100,000 a year, is college educated, owns their own home, you know, one would think that that would skew towards more affluent. However, Todd's point, I think a lot of it has to do with geography. Costco tends to be located in more in, they started out and broadened out where 60% of their warehouses are on the West Coast. So they built their way, um, you know, in more metropolitan areas and adjacent to 
suburban, you know, your typical suburban shoppers. Yeah, I think it's a real mistake to think of Costco as a national company. Um, one, especially if you're a food company, because they buy food regionally, they don't buy it nationally. And secondly, they're just not. They are somewhere between 65 and probably 80% of their business, depending on the category, comes from California, Washington, Oregon, and the Acela Corridor in the Northeast. Um, so this is a highly densely populated format that functions best in the parts of the country that are very high income, very crowded, and typically don't have Walmart as a grocery competitor. So if you look at where Costco's strength is in markets where their grocery competitive set is really expensive. Um, so be that Safeway out on the West Coast or be that the I'll hold Wakefern access on the East Coast. And um, it's just to some degree, if you're going to be a value-based, you know, sort of consumables format, Costco's has got a way easier draw, man. Like the, their division's not great. I'm a Patriots fan, and this is like the 2005 to 2015 AFC East, man. Like they get to play the Jets, Bills, and Dolphins of that era of value-based grocery. So um, I think it'll be interesting, actually, because I think one of the I think because uh, I mentioned this when we were talking about random things on another podcast, and I think one of the potential losers to some degree of the Kroger Albertsons merger should it happen is Costco. So Safeway with more rational pricing is a way bigger competitive problem for Costco than anything they've really encountered before. And Kroger will almost certainly at some point bring more rational pricing to Safeway um, from an algorithm point of view. So I think that'll be the first actual real challenge they've had from a value-based perspective in most of the markets where they make most of their money in a while. But, uh, but yeah, I do think this idea around geography dictating what the top end of the market looks like and that both these businesses serve the top end of the market, but they're just very, very different top ends. So um, how about from a channel shifting point of view, what are you seeing right now um, as the economy gets a little weird? Yeah, I think, I think value is king, right? I, I think that's why club is working. I think really, I think a couple of things, Brian, is I think about the last, call it five, 10 years, I think there was momentum in club prior to COVID because quite honestly, they were just doing a better job of managing their business. They still delivered value in a great way. They were leaning in on innovation. And they were doing a really good job of running a great retail format. And it's still fun to go there. Uh, the demo part of the experience, we always see that families love to shop at club. They go together. And it's just it, it created this just kind of fun environment that families still wanted to do prior to COVID. I think COVID really impacted uh, actually these two a little bit differently. And maybe you're you know, our conversation about geographic, you saw it play out in COVID where Costco originally didn't see the big benefit of that Sam's did because of where they were located. Some of their states were more shut down. I think traffic was impacted more negatively, Carla, right? Than Sam's, where they're located, didn't shut down as much. And certainly the consumer shifted to club in a big way and Sam's won in a tremendous way through COVID. And that behavior change, I think, is sticking. The customer, the member now uh, got in the club again, got reminded of what's there. Because sometimes as a club retailer, half the time you're just trying to remind the members that this is what we carry. Because inherently you don't carry everything, Carla, right? So you have to remind them, hey, here's what we have and you need to come here because we're a better value on the stuff you need every day. And then we're going to surprise you with the whole treasure hunt thing. I mean, fundamentally, that's what it's about. And Costco has been very consistent with that over the years with their coupon book approach and their their treasure hunt. They, they've been great at it, right? So anyway, I, I think it played out during COVID. I think it's sticking now and, and members are seeing the value. And, and then I think we'll talk about it more later, but Sam's Club was better positioned 
during COVID from a digital standpoint where they leaned in and they're winning with scan and go and pickup. And so that helped them exponentially benefit from the COVID period that now those habits are sticking. And so I think they're seeing that, you know, yeah, they're up against some tougher numbers, so their comps may get a little tougher short term, but they're positioned really well for minimizing that shifting, I think. Yeah, and I think from the Costco perspective, you know, when I first started calling on Costco, it was very much the average member went to Costco maybe once a month. And their focus was, how do we get people to come to Costco more than once a month? So what I feel has shifted over the last few years is, you know, a number of the things that Todd mentioned, but also the fact that they're getting more people coming in more frequently. And at the last supplier summit, they talked about, about how we're not going to increase our SKU count, but we may shift our SKUs. So I took that as they're getting more grocery. So that's the category that's driving the additional trips into Costco. And so while, you know, they're always going to present a good treasure hunt type of mentality, I think they're starting to shift some more of their SKUs into categories that are getting shopped more frequently and is helping them draw uh, their members in more often. And I think, you know, Todd touched on the fact that where Costco is not as advanced with the dot-com business, you know, COVID did force them to get into Instacart. And these are things that are new to Costco because that's not something they normally did. So, you know, they are taking advantage of that. And then, you know, I know we're going to get into memberships later. So um, Costco had their record re- percentage of renewal rate for their fiscal year. They just closed in August. So they're gaining new members. People are liking the experience and they're going to Costco more often. Well, yeah, and there's two interesting observations. There's a bunch of interesting observations, but a couple of the builds from a Costco point of view. One, I've always thought it's interesting because unlike most retailers, like especially if you're a brand that's trying to bring them like a new category or something like that, most retailers, if they're trying to learn a category, will start with one or two SKUs and then expand assortment. What Costco typically does is they start with three or four in the narrow. So their process of learning a category is not to broaden assortment. It's generally to narrow it. Uh, cause the better they know the category, the more they feel like they can nail the one skew that brings the category to life best. And it's just really important from a mindset point of view to realize that's kind of what you're looking at with Costco all the time. You're just never on a skew expansion journey with Costco. And if you are, it's short lived and it's a terrible idea because all you're doing is diluting the volume that makes your hurdle rates that we'll come back to in a second. I think the second thing with Costco too, I think the Instacart thing is a big deal for them because in the end, Costco is a very club manager dependent business, right? And those are the people that really drive the bus there. And I think Costco looked at the problem of trying to sort out in-store pick for e-grocery and just said, you know what? I don't want my club manager thinking about that. <laughs> like, that's not what I want them to do. I'll happily let my member pay Instacart to do that for them. Not happily, but I'll, I'll, I'll allow it to happen. Um, because it saves me the problem of my club manager worrying about something else. Apologies, by the way, I'm, I'm recording this from downtown San Francisco. So <laughs> in, insert your stereotype of what downtown San Francisco was like. Um, if you heard the police sirens in the background. So yeah, so I think it's just really interesting because I think it's just deeply reflective of how Costco processes literally every business problem in the world, which is, What's available in the world for us to not do? And then we'll just do the things we can do. But they take more pride in not doing stuff than just about any business I can think of. So, um, you know, Jack Welch once said, strategy is all about what you don't do. Costco is the living embodiment of that Jack Welch sentence. 
because they will literally do nothing that takes them off their core track. So let's talk a little bit about the members anyway, and especially from a targeting point of view. And Todd, I'll start here because I think there's more to talk about. But um, when you look at how SAMS is trying to target its members today, what do you, what do you see that's sort of changing a little bit? Yeah, well, they certainly have evolved their marketing approach, even what they're calling it now with MAP. Uh, we all need another acronym. So member access platform and I think they want to lean into communicating to their member in a proactive way and also to continue that engagement to drive those additional trips. I think, Carla, you spoke to it earlier. I think the fundamental challenge of clubs is getting one more trip because of the basket size. The power of multiplication just blows up quickly. And then the lack of being convenient, so to speak, has been the, you know constantly the challenge over the years. And I think they're trying to communicate reasons why you need to come more often. Uh, why stock up or thinking about a stock up mentality can save you money. And they're trying to really show the value of the membership. And I think that's been a challenge for these two competitors and retailers forever is to really show the members consistently how much you're saving over the course of time. One, to pay back the membership cost, right? You've got to offset that membership cost or you, you start doubting it. But also as the ticket prices have gone up, right, as inflation is, has gone up and your average basket has gone up, you have to communicate that value even more, I think, and remind them. And I think Sam's is trying to do that through the one-on-one -on -one communication, through email uh, in other ways, but also through making a bigger deal out of places and things they know they can win in. And that's seasonal events, that's preparing for, you know, whatever it is, Super Bowl or, or summer, right? So I think you'll see them continue to lean in to events and occasions that they can win in. And then how do we get out in front of that to get that trip and get those items in the pantry before other traditional retailers are doing it? And I think you'll continue to do that. And then the last thing, with all that communication and the member data, they're learning constantly. And I think that's one thing Sam's is trying to leverage better is take the data that used to be locked up tight and, and they didn't share internally. They're trying to share that out more internally to be a roadmap for the future and innovation and in what they're doing, but also to build that relationship one-on-one. -on -one. Think of it as the head and the heart. I'm always thinking about the head and the heart. And here, maybe it's the pocketbook and the heart, right? Because the value is fundamental, the, the thing they've got to communicate better. So. I think they're doing a nice job of that and we'll continue to do that. And matter of fact, down the street, they're building an innovation center right across from their home office to continue to show how much they're committed to innovating. And that's both in club, but more importantly, digital innovation in the future. And I think on the Costco side, it applies to Sam's as well. I think we shouldn't discount the fact of gas impact on, you know, memberships as well as the credit card. So, you know, Costco made a big move to switch off of American Express to Citibank. So now all of a sudden in an environment where savings, which Todd pointed out is important, you also have other things that are important. You're going to get better gas prices if you have a Costco membership. You're getting money back for everything you spend, not only on gas, but then everything that you're buying in the, not only in the warehouse, but just anywhere else in your neighborhood. And then you're, you're getting these very large checks. And so the members are finding that not only am I getting the breast price, they're training them that, you know, whether it's through word of mouth or because while, yes, there's data. I mean, they know everything you bought since you joined. 
but are they doing anything with it? They're not sharing it with the vendor community. So I don't know if Costco is doing anything with that, but they do know that they have to kind of improve in certain areas, specifically e-commerce. But I do believe that, you know, the way that I think gas is a factor that has helped drive membership. So we talked a little bit about how Costco had their record renewal rate. They talked at Supplier Day, what's the number one item sold at Costco? And these are all these vendors, you know, and nobody answered it, but it's memberships because they are more concerned about making sure you renew your membership. So are you getting the value for that membership, whether you pay 60 or $120 a year? That's the most important thing to them. And you touched on a little bit before where it's like, well, if we're only carrying one skew of this, you know, you're here. Then are you going to go drive to another retailer when you could just pick this up? Because they've trained their members in such a way that we've made the decision for you. And I think the people, the members of Costco know that if it's here, Costco did my research for me. And that's the value that is bringing. I don't have to think it through. And I think the other thing that they're doing is bringing in all the services, you know, whether it's remodeling your bathroom or getting blinds or getting a generator, they're giving back Costco cash cards and they're partnering with local places that do the work. And, you know, people are seeing a benefit from that um, because again, Costco did the research, so it must be good. Right. And automotive is another big one for them. The, uh, the ability to buy a car through Costco at uh, basically invoice costs or a little bit over invoice costs is one of the really powerful parts of the membership too. Those are all really good observations as you think about where and how sort of Costco fits into the ecosystem and, you know, what they do to target their members. I think it's always interesting because having talked to Costco a bunch over the years about this, they honestly view analysis as to some degree. I mean, they historically have always viewed a lot of data analysis as to some degree a waste of time. Like, it's like, we could just try something. Like, we could learn from that. That's probably faster than sitting through a bunch of PowerPoint presentations. So, uh, you know, and I, and I think one of the really interesting things when you start to think about bringing your proposition to life at Costco is how viscerally sometimes you have to do that, right? Like, you know, their, their buyers will typically get very bored in long PowerPoint presentations and start making fun of you very quickly. Don't bring it. You can't do it in 15 slides. You know, you, you missed your point. <laughs> and often are quite theatrical about the way in which they will show their disapproval. My, my, my favorite one is always the thing, whenever you have a food product, like, you know, when you're presenting your focus group research that shows how it lines to the member, they inevitably call in somebody from the office, ask them to taste it. <laughs> they are scripted to say it tastes terrible. And then they tell you that's their focus group. So, you know, I've always thought it's fun because the way that Costco communicates its corporate culture is often through stories. It's like an ancient tribe or something. They they pass down anecdotes, and the anecdotes are how they manage their business. And it's I don't know, it's a fascinating enterprise. So let's shift gears a little bit now. We're going to sort of dive into the nitty gritty here. So um, for brands looking to win here, how would you think about sort of what I would call classic four Ps or DSMP, or what are some of the strategies that make the most sense? And Carl, I'll kick this to you first because you started with I think one of the key concepts in club which is the idea of item merchandising. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and then what the implications of that are for a brand that's used to trying to solve category problems in a more traditional way? Sure. Well, the club channel really doesn't have a planogram and they don't do categories um, in your, like your traditional FDM retailer. And so when they're only going to carry a set number of items, so for Costco, it's 3,600 items. They want the best 3,600 items, and each item has to produce. They have hurdle rates, and if you're hitting the hurdle rate, life is good. But, you know, there are categories that they just choose not to be represented because if that item, they would rather carry 
four of a certain item in a category, if all of them are exceeding hurdle rates and just bypass something that, well, yeah, we probably should have this, but it's okay. It can't meet the hurdle rate. So every item has to produce. And the main thing to anybody wanting to get involved with Costco is there's no annuities. So once you're in Costco as an everyday item or even as an in and out item, you're not guaranteed that anything is forever. And so you have to constantly stay on top of value. I mean, the most important thing to Costco is it's got to be a value because as I mentioned earlier, they're selling memberships. So if you can go to a retailer down the street and just walk in and buy something for cheaper than what Costco's carrying, then why would you pay for the membership? So when you're making over $4 billion a year before you sell one piece of merchandise, that's how important value is to Costco. So it's not about having representation from every category that's out there. It's having the items that they're carrying deliver the business results that they're looking for. Yeah. When I think too, that that idea of the membership is so big too, because it's funny how much Amazon's learned from Costco to some degree. Like there's a great story in the Everything Store, the the first Brad Stone book about Amazon, where he talks about uh, Jeff Bezos going for a three and a half hour lunch with Jim Senegal, who was the CEO of Costco at the time, which I suspect is three and a half hours of his life, Jim would very much like back in that I think Costco... I mean, I've always described Amazon as basically what would happen if Costco got bitten by a radioactive spider. So it's like, you know, basically, or to simplify for people that didn't understand Amazon very well, it's like, look, this is easy. Just imagine if Costco sold everything, because there's so much about that membership-based model where I'm basically selling the merchandise as a way to renew the membership fee, which is so inherent to the club business, which is that the merchandise is there to get you to renew the membership. That's the core principle. And once you start to think about the merchandise as a membership renewal tool, then you start to think about, okay, why would somebody renew a membership to the club? And uniqueness comes in as a big part of that somewhere along the way. Now, I know, Todd, that for Sam's, because of the overlap with another large retailer based in Northwest Arkansas, who shall remain anonymous, um, that that uniqueness question becomes a very big one when you start to think about the DSMP strategy at Sam's. How do you look at it that way then? Yeah, it does. It becomes different. I think, uh, once again, back to the geographic locations and the crossover shoppers, definitely different. I still think, though, it gets back to some of the fundamentals the club channel were developed and based on. And we used to talk about the 10-10-3 model a lot, Parlay, right? The You make 10% average margin, you make spend 10% on expenses, and you make 3% on membership. And that has shifted over time based on the cost of goods and the cost of hiring employees, et cetera. But the foundation is still there that you guys have both referenced. The other great thing and great tool, Carla, I don't know if Costco talks about it at all anymore, but I think it's still applicable is the whole six rights of merchandising concept that Club was founded on. And, you know, it's funny, Brian, you know, we come up with new words for things and we try to modernize things and make it cool and different. But at the end of the day, those six rights still apply, whether it's in Club or online. And it's the right item at the right price at the right time and the right quantity delivered in the right condition and in the right place. And so I think, you know, some folks who are viewing this, maybe never heard the six rights, you should go back and study them. But that foundation still applies today. And, you know, some things have uh, shifted or evolved, but basically that's what we're talking about. But it starts with the right item, not items, right? It's singular. And I think that's the fundamental difference. And it's really hard for 
uh, traditional folks that have been brought up in a sales organization that's not in club to come into club and get your head in the right place on how important each item is, what the volume opportunity is there and, and how to be disciplined. Because I think to get in the club channel and to do it right, whether you're on the club side, the retailer side, or the supplier side, it's about discipline and consistency and, and not overcomplicating it. And that's hard to do in, in any day and age, but definitely right now. Well, and I think the other thing about item merchandising, which gets so important is, is the, then becomes the critical importance of packaging in the club channel. Like, um, you know, basically, five I will. Five rule. Yeah. <laughs> the five by five, like five seconds, five feet away, you should know exactly what is the proposition because people are visually stimulated by walking through. And I think a lot of it also has to do with the categories you're in because Sam's and Costco, I think, flow you a certain way. And, you know, in the case of Costco, they're really trying to beef up the health and beauty aid and OTC because that usually the way their traffic pattern flows is the last place you're going to hit. You've already been through the televisions and the food and then all of a sudden you're starting to see the checkout and you see your cart full. So what's going to drive you to go into an area? So to your point, it's packaging and it's got to be something that's like, I got to have this or I have to go see what this is. Well, it's also mechanically, your cart is so heavy at the end that, and it's so full that the only thing you've got room for are like little bottles of vitamins and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> so, um, well, I always think it's fascinating too, the way the club building is laid out because basically you're meant to shop the needs on the way up and then you're basically meant to shop the wants on the way back. And one of the things that Costco is absolutely brilliant at in the buildings where they dramatically overperform, given the markets that are most important in this category is critical is wine, right? So. If you look at a Costco building, it actually has wine in the back corner of the building where it's supposed to be. When, unlike in a lot of buildings, particularly in the East Coast, where they're legally not allowed to do that um, because the alcohol has got to be outside the building or some weird configuration. That's where you start to see the real, because that's the transition category, right? Like, oh, I need some wine. Oh, God, look at that Cabernet. And now all of a sudden you're spending $30 on a bottle of Cabernet that costs 45 And you've shifted from I came here to buy toilet paper <laughs> to now I'm buying fine wine. And now as you walk back, you've shifted from need mode to want mode. And Costco's ability to convert you that way because of how important wine is to their core member and how good they are at selling it, I think is one of the really hidden things that Costco excels at. And I've always thought, and Todd, you and I have talked about this a lot, even when you're at Sam's, I've always thought that Sam's has kind of struggled to figure out exactly what that category is that flips the member from need mode to want mode. And it's one of the biggest, you know, because in the end, you could get as good a wine as you want, but if, you know, if you're in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, that's just not really going to do you all that much. So, um, you know, the per cap consumption of wine in Costco areas of the country is like three to four times the per cap consumption of wine in the Sam's Club areas. So got to find out a different strategy for that. So it's, um, it's interesting. But how, how do you think about the member journey within Sam's, Doug? Yeah, I think foundationally you start with the cart rail, tries to set the tone of the club coming in, more seasonally focused, et cetera. And I think Sam's does a really good job of mixing in really the seasonality. They probably focus more on some of the seasonality aspects of the club, uh, where Costco might have it just embedded in the run where Sam's brings it front and center more. And then I think, you know, TVs are still up front. It's still a, a destination category, even though we all may be buying them less. Uh, certainly it still makes a statement about technology. And then I think, you know, Sam's has really leaned in on that grocery and consumables shopper and category. So you certainly feel like there's more focus and, uh, you know, square footage in the club based on that. And it's paying off as you see their numbers. 
But I think they're trying to figure out how to do a better job in seasonal in the right way in, in each club. And then the whole move, you know, business member clubs versus non-business members. Certainly you've seen a shift there where they have focused less on the business member in each club. But a lot of times in a market, they will have a club that will over-index in that assortment to try to drive the member there. Of course, Costco has the business centers and that's their approach. So it, it really is kind of an ever-evolving thing based on you know the current strategy, but certainly they're trying to follow Costco more with the member they're going after, higher income for sure, and really try to do a really nice job at what we used to call the sticky categories of consumables and food where you need to eat every day. And then I think Sam's has done some really nice things in the health and wellness area to focus on it and to realize, to make it sticky. And, you know, the different pricing for plus members, which they both do, you know, most of the people watching this probably wouldn't even realize you don't need a membership at either club to go use the pharmacy, right? It's a, it's a law that you don't. But or to buy alcohol, which is one of the less known secrets in the United States, you, you legally can't require a membership to buy alcohol. Yeah, but if you're a member that's engaged in those categories, ironically, adult beverage or pharmacy, the renewal rates are off the charts, right? And, and you, once again, it drives another trip. Uh, you can offer a value there that's unique. And the pharmacy interaction at a Sam's Club or a Costco is much different than that at a higher script volume location. And I think that's why Sam's has you know, continued to score high and win the um, J.D. Power Award for pharmacy because the interaction really is different. Once again, back to the heart, right? Trying to drive that relationship with a member, you build member for life. And that's really what both of these you know, competitors are trying to do is build that member for life. Well, it's ironic in pharmacy today, the only buildings that can support a pharmacist that can actually serve customers are ones that don't depend on the pharmacy for their revenue model. Because yeah. if you depend on your pharmacy for the revenue model, all the pharmacist has time to do is count pills because it's such a low margin business that in drug, you just can't get that level of service. The economics don't actually permit it weirdly. So you'd have thought the drug channel would be absolutely best in class for pharmacist services, but economically, it just can't do it. So the only channels that can do that are ones that don't need the pharmacy to basically make money in order to be able to create value from the, uh, the shop or the member that way. Yep. And I think the last thing you're probably going to go there at some point, and maybe we go there now, is talking about private brand and just how you know Costco really has been the the real case study in the world about driving private brand and what it means and how you really put Kirkland on an item. It, it brings it up on how the member thinks about it. And it certainly is success like no other retailer really on, on being on every item in the club, right? From a grill to paper towels, right? And, and I think it is one place where Sam's has done a really nice job over the last, call it 10 to 15 years, when, when finally made the decision to go to one brand and really following that blueprint that Kirkland set to drive differentiation, to focus 100% on quality, and then obviously deliver value. And so if you think about how to be successful in, in club, it's really follow what they've done on Members Mark and Kirkland is, you know, focus on quality number one, offer it in a great item that the member wants, and then just make sure the value is there. And at the end of the day, I guess my best advice to anyone is follow kind of what they've laid out as a blueprint on their private brand and how that applies to your brand is how you remain successful at club. And once again, it's hard when you manage it against all the other retailers and competitors and brand managers across your team, but it, really the blueprint is there. It's just hard to sometimes stay disciplined with it. Well, it was one of my favorite exercises to do when I was doing this stuff back in the day, was to actually take club teams and uh, bring their packaging designers and say, we're not going to look at your products for once, and we're not going to look at your category. We're just going to go around and look at the Kirkland Signature stuff. And then we're going to come back, 
And we're going to have the packaging engineers and the designers tell you why that's good. So then you're going to reverse engineer what the attributes are of what is successful Costco packaging. When your designers look at Kirkland Signature Packaging, it can explain to you in your design terms why it's good, like what really works about it. You know, we all know it's, you know, it's Carlos 5x5 rule that you mentioned before. It's high contrast colors. It's incredibly crisp imagery. It's the ability to use images that capture the value proposition that aren't abstract, that just help the whole thing kind of connect together. And I think that takes us to an interesting question, which is, all right, so for brands that don't have club distribution but are trying to get it, what do you recommend? What are your top three, top four, top five ideas? And Carla, we'll start with Costco with you first. Well, I think first of all, I mean, it could go either way. I mean, they definitely want the item to have some uh, proven existence because Costco really doesn't want to be more than 10 or 20% of any manufacturer's business. So you have to think in terms of then how big is your business? You can either start with Costco or end with Costco, depending on how you're developing your SKU count. But I think it's really important to understand what role is Costco going to play in your overall business plan for your company. Because the one thing that Jim Senegal would say on a very regular basis is that, well, when you do business with us, you are going to make less margin. But if you're not here, somebody else is going to make all the top line with that less margin because there will be people who we will find to do business with us. So I'd say first you have to have the right item and you have to have the right savings because those are the two things that are the most important to Costco. Then, you know, the support that's going to go behind it, because as Todd pointed out earlier, Costco really doesn't market. They're relying on you to um, you, the manufacturer, to build the awareness with the members of Costco so that when they go into Costco, like, wow, I didn't know they carry the Theragun or the sharper image massage gun or that they're carrying um, Relaxium, which I saw on a news channel. So, you know, those are the kind of things that you have to bring to the table. And also you have to have a, a, an in plan and an out plan. I think it's the most important thing too, as you're building your business for whether it be Sam's or Costco, that, you know, you may only have a 12 week rotation. You have to plan for it being successful out of the gate but you also have to plan for it not being successful. Because if you're successful out of the gate, then how can you respond to the increase in demand? If it's not successful, you don't want to wait till week 10 to figure out how are we going to clean this product up and mark it down, and it's not built into the P&L for that particular product. So I think you have to just, what role is this? Is Costco going to play in the overall business? I always tell clients, how big do you want your Costco business to be? Because I think you have to understand that because you are going to make less margin, but you're, you're going to have very high highs when it comes to volume. You know, if you get a successful item in Costco, the volumes are staggering. I mean, it can change an entire brand's trajectory for any year if you hit on something that's right with Costco. Yeah, I mean, there are entire brands that have built their existence off of getting a Costco launch right, you know, particularly food brands that started in a region and then went nationals. So, Todd, anything you'd add to that or flex on that from Sam's point of view? Yeah, I I just think you've got to think through why the item matters. And, you know, that's either going to come from the category ranking it is today. It's a top item and they're not getting any share piece of that. So you need to go after it because it's now becoming a top item in the category. Or there's some sense of you know newness or differentiation or innovation that they got to go, right? Because remember, these members at Costco and Sam's, they're they're early adopters in most everything in their life, right? Because they have more money than the average consumer. So they're early adopters and they expect to see cool things in there. 
And then we've talked ad nauseum about value, but you can't not have a value. That's the price of entry. So it's probably 18 to 20% value against, you know, an everyday price or whatever. You've got to have that value or they won't pay attention. And then I think lastly, you've got to drive demand. And so how you do that outside of the Costco or Sam's network, it has to be important, whether it's through traditional marketing, social influencers, TikTok, whatever, right? You've got to drive demand and that hype. You've got to build the hype so that it hits the Costco buyer, the Sam's buyer radar. And then once you get in, you've got to support their things, their triggers. And, you know, you talk about uh, food items, demos. I could tell you the rest of the day, we could talk about brands who were put on the map because you got to put them in the hands and the mouth of a consumer in food. And so demos still work. They're a little bit different today than they used to be. But that's one example that, you know, there are brands that take every dollar you have in marketing applied to demos the first six months. You can build something really special with Costco and Sam's versus other ways, right? So depending on the category you're in, lean into the things that they offer. We all know the power of coupon book, right? But you have to help drive demand both outside the club and inside to stay relevant and to keep that volume climbing because the next brand's right there behind you trying to take that pallet position. And I'm going to use this as a way to open up the next phase of the conversation because I think you've each alluded to at least two of the biggest mistakes that I've seen brands make over the years in trying to deal with club. Uh, number one is allowing people to deal with club that don't understand it very well, and then having them waste a ton of time building things the club simply won't do. So um, the amount of, and Carla, I know you've seen this a lot, the amount of marketing energy that has been consumed over the years I've been doing this, watching marketers develop platforms and programs for club that there's absolutely no possible way they're ever going to execute, um, can get really, really high. It's like, no. Figure out how to do the things they know how to do. Don't try to teach Costco or Sam's how to run their business differently. That generally speaking goes rather poorly. It goes really poorly at Costco. It can go a little better at Sam's. And I think the second piece is, Todd, you hit on this in your points, but I think it's almost as important to Costco, which is that remember what the buyer gets paid to do. The buyer at Costco gets paid to do one thing, literally one thing, which is maximize sales per item per building per week, period, the end. So margin's cool, but... Really what they're trying to do is they're trying to maximize that one metric and they focus almost all of their energy. Some of this depends a little on category, but they'll focus an enormous amount of energy on that metric. The amount of time I've seen brands spend trying to talk the buyer into caring about something that isn't the thing they're paid to care about is remarkable. And in other classes of trade, because the buyer's got a more complex or nuanced set of metrics, sometimes that repositioning can work. I find it works terribly in club. So it's like, look, this is what the buyer's paid to do. Serve them what they came to the restaurant for. You know, they're not here to try your monkfish. They're here for steak and potatoes. Give them the steak and potatoes they came for. Then you can serve them something a little bit later. So I'd be curious, though, for your point of view about what are some of the other mistakes you see brands sort of make as they try to manage this and navigate this class of trade? I think sometimes it's really keep it simple. You know, I think that. Um, don't try and sell them multiple things in a pack. Just sell them what the consumer wants, more of the same at a good value in most cases. And so, you know, trying to talk to them about how, well, this consumer also uses this and this and this, and then Costco will play back to you. But there's also people who don't use that, so they won't buy this because that's in it. So that's why you want to keep it simple. Go with your top performers. Keep the messaging clean. 
don't try and overdo it because again, you're, you're shopping in a warehouse. So if you think about you're shopping in a warehouse, you're buying stuff product off of a pallet. So more at a good value is really what people want. And the other thing I think people make the mistake is, and I think you touched on it too, is trying to change the way Costco goes to market. Because even as they're evolving now, they're even learning while their uh, mailer is very effective, they're making reductions in the mailer. I mean, they're going to go down to about 50 less coupons starting in January because they want to get back to the basics, which is we can sell more volume if you just lower the retail and give a better, especially on consumables. People will buy more of an item if they think they're getting an even better savings. So why limit the savings to that three and a half week period? Put the savings there 52 weeks of the year every day. So they're trying to value, value, value is just the, the new mindset. And I know we're going to talk about a little bit of sustainability later down the road. And not having an exit strategy is a mistake that a lot of manufacturers make. Because you have to, while you go in with the best intentions and plan for success, you have to also be able to manage things that don't hit the sales per building per week. Because, you know, there has to be a way to clean up the mess, for lack of a better word. And I think sometimes you get caught up in the enthusiasm. I'm going to get my brand in Costco. And like you said, sales per building per week is key. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I remember talking to a senior Costco person about this years ago. And I was, this is when I was still pretty new. And I was like, well, yeah, how many items in the building are rotational? And they just went, <laughs> all of them. And I thought that that was probably one of the most useful things I ever learned. Um, and I think it's actually really important to managing Costco specifically, which is that no matter how far above the hurdle rate you are for your category from a sales per item per building per week point of view, the minute that stops growing, you've got to assume that you're on a day count at that point. Because the, the only way the buyer can grow the business is to grow sales per item per building per week. And even if you're, and it feels unfair. That's one of the phrases you hear a lot about Costco. This is unfair. We're at $850 per item per building per week and the hurdle rate's 500 and they're delisting us. I'm like, yeah, but you've been at 850 for a year. So unless it's going to grow, they're going to look for something that can grow, right? Because they're going to try to find that. And it's that whole planned obsolescence piece at Costco that's so important, which is that you know everything literally has a shelf life there. You always have to, the minute you land the skew, that's when you start thinking about what the next item has to be. So, Todd, any additional thoughts on this front? I just think as a club retailer, you have a license to not carry everything. So that enables you or, or empowers you to make decisions like you just said. I, I don't have to carry that because my member knows I'm not going to have everything. So it's just a different mentality of how they approach it. We used to talk intelligent loss of sales. Hey, I'm going to walk away from this over here and I'm going to make it up over here. And sometimes you just do it to keep people off balance, right? To Obviously, it's a negotiation tactic. So I think those are really important things to remember. And then I also think relationships really matter and they still do. And so, you know, one, you talked about it, just assigning the next great person in your organization to the club channel without indoctrinating and getting them understanding, like you've got to figure out how to better teach, train, and evolve your your sales team going in there, or they're going to get run over, so to speak, right? And then I think also, um, you know, the, even building a relationship is totally different at these two retailers. I mean, you know, Carly, you have buyers who have been there since I graduated college, which was a long time ago, in the same category at Costco, where at the same time, Sam's has probably evolved to 10 or 12 different 
people. So keeping up with that, how you build relationships at the two organizations is very different, but very important because they are controlling so much of your volume if you are uh, successful there. So even thinking about those things, you know, we could talk about that all day. It really matters and it's a different approach. And I've told you, Brian, I spent probably the first two years of my career at Sam's Club just reminding the clients, the suppliers, that we were in Bentonville and we were important. So when you come to Bentonville and meet with the number one retailer in the world, don't leave town without meeting with the fourth or fifth or wherever we ranked in the category they played to go meet with number seven. And that happened all the time. And I think the things that Sam's Club's up against and keeping mind share with big suppliers is different than Costco. And that's something you got to think about internally as well. All right. We're getting close to the end of our time here. So uh, why don't I do this? If we've got a couple of topics here, one is retail media. And uh, Todd, I'll have you hit that. And then if you want to talk a little bit about sustainability in the context of the clubs and Carl, if you want to wrap up on that, and then we'll just kind of end with just your thoughts on what the future of the channel are. But um, not to in any way disparage Costco's efforts in the retail media business. But um, <laughs> okay. um, Sam's is a more developed strategy there. So why don't we use this moment to talk a little bit about what you see Sam's doing there. And uh, I think particularly for this audience, how it's sort of the same or different than what Walmart's doing. And then let's talk a little bit about sustainability and any thoughts you have on the future of the club channel, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, it's similar to what Walmart's doing. I mean, everybody realizes there's additional dollars for them to go get as a retailer to support their marketing strategies. I think Sam's is doing it, you know, really focusing on having the right digital capabilities, which we talked earlier. I think they're really well positioned there. Some of their return on event, the ROI or, you know, we won't get into ROAS and all that here, but some of their return on investment might be even higher than a Walmart because it's more targeted, right? So I would say at Sam's, the differentiating factor there is their ability to be targeting and are you talking that way with that map team as you engage with them? Because that's the way you test and learn and really get some good payback and then go expand it in the right way. But they're certainly seeing, trying to design their offering to be out in front, right? Understanding the importance of video and how to do that, how to understand how to, uh, create the right return as you're thinking about these allocations of retail media. And then the personalization, I think, is something that they're really leaning in on that can, is and will differentiate them in a good way. And then, you know, they're all trying to figure out how AI helps inform the search and et cetera. And, you know, really, Brian, if you back up, they have a whole different philosophy on the role that their dot-com site plays. Sam's duplicates their in-store or in-club assortment because they want to enable research and and pickup and delivery, et cetera, right? Where Costco, Carla, you can speak to it, but their online assortment is very differentiated in many ways in the way that's in club if you're not using Instacart. So just fundamentally, the way they're setting up the approach and their strategy on their dot-com site leads them down two really different paths. And so in your organization, if you're not engaging with Sam's Club more like you are traditional retailers, you're missing out on opportunities to learn and engage and be out in front versus if you're just bucketing that, hey, well, it's just a club. It's just like Costco. That is not true. And so that's probably the biggest guidance and advice I'd give. And then once again, develop that relationship with your map team so that you're seen as a partner and then test your way into it. Right. Don't bet the farm on one tactic. Test and learn in the things that are going to give you the best payback and learning uh, for your brand. Awesome. Carl, how about you? Last thoughts on uh, where Costco, whether it's sustainability or whatever they're doing from a targeting point of view, or just thoughts on the future? 
Yeah, um, I think having just attended their supplier summit, every EVP who spoke had sustainability in their presentation. Because obviously when you're in the club channel, there is extra packaging that goes into, you know, just merchandising. So you, you don't think you need 48 square inches of plastic packaging to sell Elizabeth Arden cosmetics. Yes. That's a, that seems wasteful. Right. So they're, you know, they're putting a focus on, they stress to all the manufacturers that please make strides to build sustainability into your packaging. But they caveated that by saying, if what we're asking you to do is going to increase costs, then let's have a conversation because you still have to provide a good value. So they, they're not necessarily willing to trade, you know, more expensive packaging to become environmentally sustainable. It then degrades their value. So they're starting to inch into this and, you know, whether it's moving from shrink wrap to chipboard, you know, have your bottles be PET. The other thing they talked about though, is they're, they're leaning towards the future of having a measurement for how you're reducing your carbon footprint within your organization, your manufacturing organization, whether it's the way you're shipping product, they're not there yet. They're testing it a little bit in uh, some of the international markets because it's a little bit smaller to be able to measure something like that. But they said it's not something that we're ready to have any type of a measurement on, but it's going to be something in the future that becomes important because as Costco is now, you know, the retailer that it is, they feel it's their job to contribute to, you know, helping the environment. And even from the standpoint of returns, they're encouraging, as opposed to sending returns back to the manufacturer or disposing them, let them donate because they've got this vast network where they can donate your product. So all of that is just better overall for the life cycle of a product from the time it hits their building to the time it um, leaves the building. What does the member do with all of this packaging when they get home? So, you know, that's definitely a focus. As far as moving forward, I think, you know, the most important thing I gathered from just listening to Costco all the years I've been there is, you know, it goes back to membership. We have got to, how do we continue to have people renew that membership? And that's always going to be their focus. It doesn't seem to be changing, but they also know that they have to get younger. So if you're going to get younger, then what's going to appeal to a millennial or even younger than that versus your current core member? So they have to find that balance, which may be adjusting where the SKUs are and the type of items that they're carrying or the size of the items they're carrying. Because, you know, if you live in a metropolitan area in a apartment, that's different from if you live in the suburbs in your house and you can stack toilet paper in your basement. So I think that's going to be the future. And I think Todd touched on again, digital. Costco has got to put, they really know that they have to get better at e-commerce while it's, it is a focus for them, but they know that they have a long runway to improve, to be competitive. And I think that as the world evolves into, you know, doing a lot of online shopping, while they want them to come in the club, they can offer a broader assortment online. Yeah. Well, and I think that's always been Costco's approach because Instacart solves their in-club problem. They've always used the online site as a way to sell stuff that they would love to carry in the building, but the economics don't make sense. So um, that's cool. All right. Well, look, this has been a great conversation. We could probably keep doing this for another hour, but I don't know how many people will be listening at the end, but, but not because it's not great, just because two hours is a long time. 
uh, Carla, Todd, thank you very much for your perspective on all this stuff. For more questions, please reach out to the Market Performance Group team, Todd, Carla, or anyone you know at Market Performance Group. And if you want more information on the proposition that uh, MPG brings to brands to help them win in the club channel, reach out and let us know. So for my two esteemed uh, friends and colleagues, uh, it's Brian Goldenberg for the MPG Path Forward signing off. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you, Brian.